It's the morning of April 7th, and the number of COVID-19 cases in Virginia has risen to 3,333, populating more data fields that will allow us to see how well we are doing in flattening the curve. We are now well into the fourth week of social distancing measures designed to slow the spread of a disease that is deadly for so many. Governor Ralph Northam thinks we're on the right track. Virginia is a leader in fighting this pandemic. But we are also in a time when we can't be too careful. And to keep the number of infected people down, Governor Northam is now urging individual action. I would advise everyone to wear a face covering when you're out. I'm Sean Tubbs, and you're listening to the Charlottesville Quarantine Report for April 7th. Today, more details from yesterday's press briefing, as well as sound from the most recent edition of Charlottesville City Government's new television show. We don't yet know when the surge of hospitalizations will reach its peak. Different models show different days. Here's some advice from Charlottesville City Councilor Lloyd Snook. And the way that it gets over as soon as possible is for people to stay home. This morning, I saw one news report that stated with certainty that one model said the peak day of hospitalizations will hit Virginia on this one upcoming day. I'm not going to tell you which day it is because we still don't know yet. There is not enough data, but more is coming in each and every day. So far, we know that the peak could happen sometime between late April and late May. On the April 2nd edition of Seville 360, Charlottesville Fire Chief Andrew Baxter said there are several epidemiological models. All of those, I think, send a message uh, to the community and to those of us um, in public safety and public health um, that are in a planning and response mode uh, that this is a long-term campaign. Um, I don't think there are probably too many people walking around who don't understand that yet, Um, but sort of working backwards from those dates, it's very helpful for us um, in being able to understand the type of logistical supports uh, that we're going to need uh, in the long term. And this is a, an ultra marathon. We, we started out saying this is a marathon, not a sprint. It's really an ultra marathon. While we wait for the peak to hit our area, Baxter said that gives us time to prepare for when the surge will hit. We'll hear more throughout the episode of what's being done to get ready. For the past two days, death rates in New York City have stayed flat, indicating that they may have hit their peak. However, new numbers reported this morning show that the number of deaths actually went up today, so we don't know if they've hit their peak or not. Stay patient and stay tuned. Meanwhile, in Virginia, the number of cases is rising. Today saw the biggest jump in cases so far, with a rise of 455 confirmed cases for a cumulative total of 3,333. That number does not include the number of clinically diagnosed cases. The number of hospitalizations rose to 563. At yesterday's press briefing, State Health Commissioner Norm Oliver said all of the Virginia Department of Health numbers represent snapshots in time. Those numbers in and of themselves are probably, not probably, almost definitely an underestimate of of the actual spread of the disease in the community. We have been talking for some time now about the fact that we have widespread uh, transmission of the disease. There are many people who have COVID-19 who are walking around in our community, and this is the reason why social distancing is so important. And we don't track those numbers either because we don't have widespread testing. One thing I learned at the April 6th press briefing is that the number of hospitalizations reported each day comes from Virginia Health Information and comes from discharge information reported as claims. 
that number lags behind the number that you would get if you were to um, ask that same question of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association, which actually tracks the current census in the hospitals. And I would, I would encourage you to talk with them about that. And that number will change, obviously, every day as the census goes up, up and down. I visited the VHA website, and there's a dashboard that you can see in the show notes. As of April 6th, there were 1,194 patients who were either confirmed COVID-19 cases or are waiting for test results to come in. To break that number down, that's 538 confirmed cases and 656 pending cases. Of that total number, 387 patients are in intensive care units and 285 are on ventilators. Another statistic so far is that only a quarter of ventilators are currently in use. These numbers will keep changing. There are many models that project when a surge of cases is expected. Oliver said the University of Virginia is working on a new model that will be released for the Commonwealth later this week. Until then, Governor Northam sounded a confident tone at the April 6th briefing. Virginia is a leader in fighting this pandemic. Thankfully, this weekend... We did not see the crowds at our beaches and our state parks like we saw a week ago, and for that I say thank you. Science tells us that social distancing is the best way to fight COVID-19. That's why it is important to stay home. I know that it is difficult, but we will get through this together. However, Northam said many people still don't realize that they can spread the virus if they are infected but have not yet developed symptoms. That's one reason why the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has now issued guidelines for people to wear cloth face coverings when they go out, such as to the grocery store. Face coverings can help reduce the spread of COVID-19. If a person is wearing a face covering, It is less likely that droplets from a sneeze or from talking will spread out into the air. And if you're wearing a face covering, it can offer some level of protection against those droplets. It also makes you more aware of of accidentally touching your face. You don't need a medical-grade mask to do this. In fact, you can make your own. The Internet has many patterns and instructions for how to do so, even if you can't sew. You can even use rubber bands and a bandana. Northam even showed off a mask that was made by incarcerated persons still within the state prison system. If you are going out with a cloth mask, make sure you wash it at least once a day. And as I record this, Albemarle County has just sent out information that all of their employees still working in the field are to wear facial coverings. As we wait for the surge of hospitalizations, whenever the peak comes, Virginia continues preparations for three temporary hospitals and continues to find new sources of personal protective equipment, or PPE. We have been working with every angle to buy more PPE. I'm thrilled that we have executed a $27 million contract with Northfield, a Virginia-based logistics company, to provide PPE. We expect the first shipment of PPE from Asia to arrive a week from today. We have also signed a contract with SD's Trucking to handle logistics and distribution. We have begun shipping 56,000 MREs, that stands for Meals Ready to Eat, 
to food banks. And this can supply our food banks for the next six weeks. Yesterday, Northam announced that there are improvements at the state lab responsible for the official count of COVID-19 cases. Our Division of Consolidated Laboratory Services is starting to use genetic technology to help our public health officials better understand COVID-19. DCLS is doing this work alongside the CDC and international public health and university partners. They are building a library of genetic information from the positive test DCLS gets, as well as those from private labs, health systems, and university systems in Virginia. One insight they have already learned, it appears that the virus was introduced in Virginia in multiple communities rather than spreading from one single source. I'm proud that DCLS is one of the first public health labs in the nation to do this very sophisticated work. Virginia's participation in this program will help scientists better understand the virus and how it might mutate into new forms. But let's get back to testing. Northam acknowledged that Virginia does not have the capacity it needs to test as many people as it should be testing. Yet he said scientific advances are happening that will expand the range in the near future. Here's a response from Dan Carey, Virginia's Secretary of Health. A number of uh, patients are in hospitals that have testing results uh, pending. Okay, two, two things. One is, is that's where the in-house hospital labs that are uh, becoming increasingly available at UVA, at Centera, the governor mentioned Centera, here at VCU, and also the state lab, that that is one of the priorities, that, that folks who are in the hospital and have a lab pending. Now, there are still uh, thousands of labs sent each day to the commercial labs because it's still important to know whether they have their positive or not. And those commercial labs are committed to getting those turnaround times quicker. It still is very uh, uh, helpful to know right away. So we've had folks in a hospital with a lab pending, but they send a sample to the state lab or to UVA and they get it back in a day or a day and a half and they're able to turn down the amount of uh, personal protective equipment they're using on that patient. They, they have a viral syndrome, it's just not influenza and it's not uh, COVID-19. So what you're, it's important to have that testing because you get the results, but it's critically important for folks who are in the hospital to know if they have it and especially if they don't have it because they can de decrease the contact precautions and all the PPE that uh, the governor uh, described last week. And here's more on testing from Denise Tony, the head of the state labs. What I can say is that they are continuing to work through their backlog, and we have heard that there have been some reduction in their turnaround times. But what we've also seen in the Commonwealth is there have been a number of smaller um, um, private commercial laboratories that have stood up testing and are now offering testing for the Commonwealth. So there is a desire to coordinate testing and divert some of the hospital work to some of these new laboratories that now have a capacity and can share some of the testing burden. 
I think with respect to your second question about the testing that has a 15 to 30 minute turnaround time, as, as Secretary Kerry mentioned, while these are not in place in Virginia, even when they do come in place, what we are struggling with is that the reagents and the, the cassettes that are needed to run these systems are not widely available. So even if hospitals get the instrumentation, the ability to scale up and run large numbers will still be a barrier to being able to use them widely for that quick point-of-care test, testing results. One of the best parts of these periodic briefings is the question-and-answer session from reporters. On April 6th, reporter Daniela Cheslau of radio station WAMU asked a very pertinent question. For all of the um, representatives and officials up on the dais, why are none of you wearing masks if this is the recommendation? Thank you. Uh, we all have masks, uh, and when we exit the building, uh, that's when we wear our masks, but we're, when we're inside... Uh, in our offices, we, we don't keep them on. But good, I appreciate the question, and I appreciate you uh, putting the message out there that uh, all Virginians, uh, when you're out and about, uh, we would encourage you strongly to use a mask. We began this show with a soundbite about models. One reporter asked about one model that showed that Virginia's peak would be on April 20th. Governor Northam urged caution. I think we've made the point a couple times there are various models uh, they change literally every day depending on the data uh, that is put into them. And so we haven't made any adjustments by what we're seeing. Uh, we will certainly continue to follow the trends. Um, and, you know, if and when we need to make uh, adjustments in, in our guidelines, we will certainly do that. But for right now, uh, as I just uh, reinforced, uh, that's coming from the, the national level and also from us, continue to do what you're doing. The, the stay at home is, is working. Uh, the social distancing, the frequent hand washing, uh, all of these things are, are effective. So keep, keep, doing up, keep doing the great work. Another question came from Henry Graff, who spent years as a reporter for NBC29 in Charlottesville. Now he's with a station in Richmond. Here he asks an important question about some of the most vulnerable in our community. Locally, there have been confirmed patients at at least two long-term care facilities in our area. Um, governor, uh, Maryland's governor issued an order requiring all nursing home staff to wear PPE and to segregate infected um, patients. Are you interested in something similar to that? And then can you kind of give us a bigger picture of how you guys are dealing with the, the outbreaks of the long-term care facilities? Yes. I'm going to let uh, Dr. Oliver uh, talk about the nursing homes and, and the requirements in the nursing home. But I did want to comment. I, I'm not sure why they didn't call on you first, Henry, because in here you're the only one that I see has... Uh, face covering equipment, so uh, uh, I'm proud of you, so, Dr. Oliver. So the question, as I understand it, is are we taking any special kinds of precautions or procedures, interventions with respect to long-term care facilities? Um, the Virginia Department of Health has uh, 35 districts across the Commonwealth, about 129 local health departments, and those uh, local uh, divisions of the uh, health department are working very closely with uh, the long-term care facilities in their area. Um, the idea is to, as soon as we find a case in one of these uh, facilities, we've done very extensive uh, contact investigation and then worked with the administration of that long-term care facility to, to 
isolate the case and begin to ensure that um, none of the contacts are actually infected and pr protect the rest of the facility from that. I think that what uh, we've seen in Washington State and unfortunately here in, uh, in the Richmond area and, and in Reichel, for example, is that um, if you um, don't get on that soon enough, you get a very wide, it's a population in which this infection can spread quite quickly. So uh, I would say that what we're doing is we've stepped up our vigilance and surveillance in these facilities and worked more closely with them. As I record this, the Associated Press is reporting that 28 COVID-19 deaths have come from the Canterbury Rehabilitation and Healthcare Center in Henrico County. Each death is a person who leaves behind loved ones who most likely were not able to be with them in their final moments. This is not a vacation. These are very troubling times. You're listening to the Charlottesville COVID-19 Report. These times require new forms of communication. The city of Charlottesville is getting word out to people through a new show called Seaville 360, which is being produced twice a week. One of the guests on the April 2nd edition was Chris Engel, the city's director of economic development. He illustrates how much things have changed so quickly. It's a shock, obviously. This is unprecedented. Uh, it's difficult to comprehend how we arrived here in such a short time. Uh, we released the Office of Economic Development's annual report just 30 days ago, and the welcome letter to that report references uh, an over 10-year, 10-year-plus expansion in this country um, in, in the economic environment. And uh, obviously we've seen a shock to that. Um, here locally in Charlottesville, I referenced several figures uh, which were uh, records. Uh, we had uh, the lowest unemployment rate in 15 years uh, uh, last month and uh, the highest number of jobs ever in the city of Charlottesville, uh, nearly 42,000 jobs um, uh, in the last six months as an average. We also saw average uh, wage growth last year of 2.5% uh, across all sectors and all, all levels of pay. We saw the highest level of commercial investment uh, in the city ever, $145 million spread across a number of projects, several of which are, are large and significant which we were seeing for the first time. Uh, then, you know, in early March, uh, things started to change, and by March the 12th, we had a, a state declaration of emergency, followed by a city declaration of emergency, and a virtual halt to, to trade and commerce uh, throughout the city, throughout the state, uh, throughout the country. This is unusual in, in that uh, disasters are typically short-lived, um, days, maybe a week. Um, and I think what's most unsettling for all of us in this situation is not knowing how long. Um, 72 days is a long time, and it may or may not be that. Um, but uh, not knowing where the end is uh, it doesn't allow for people, uh, business owners, to plan effectively, which is obviously causing a great deal of challenge. Seville 360 is hosted by Brian Wheeler, the city's director of communications. Here he asks City Councilor Lloyd Snook about what his experience looks like from the perspective of a new elected official. You know, uh, Mr. Snook, you're a new member of City Council, and, and I'm wondering how you would characterize, um, you know, this experience you're going through as one of our local leaders and, and what you're seeing. 
Well, it certainly was not what I was expecting during the campaign. Uh, we were, frankly, you know, sort of almost taken by surprise, I suppose, in March, uh, because although we had been seeing news reports of things happening in Washington State and in China and so on, the reality that it would come to Charlottesville, the reality that it would come to uh, stay-at-home orders here hadn't really sort of sunk in until about, uh, I'd say, we had a budget work session on March 12th and another uh, public hearing on March 16th. And over that weekend, we began, I think all of us into, as individuals, began to sort of get hit by the fact that we'd been planning for a budget that no longer made sense. That we'd been planning for a budget where clearly our revenues, our tax revenues, were going to be down a great deal. And we needed to do some, some thinking about that. There is a great hope in this country that the, we were immediately thrown into a recession uh, simply by so many people. We now saw, I guess, six, more million, six million more people being uh, filing for unemployment this week. Uh, that's, that's a huge number. Uh, and so the hope is that we can have what's called a V recession, where we go down sharply, then we come up sharply, as opposed to what we saw in 2008, where a recession that went down and then kind of gradually came back up. And it was five years before we could get back to where we wanted to be. There's so much we don't know yet. What we do know is that local governments are going to have to adjust their existing year's budgets in order to cope with the financial effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Last week, I reported about Albemarle County's budgetary situation. The Board of Supervisors will need to revisit the current year's budget to cut $3 million in general government spending. I'm still working to find out where the city is in its budget process. Here's Councillor Snook again. I, can, I think I can say that uh, there is no interest on councils, uh, on any individual councilor's part or council as a whole in raising taxes. So we will be finding ways to tighten our belt. Uh, and the belt, you know, it may mean that there are some projects that we were hoping to launch in this coming fiscal year that aren't going to get launched or that we're hoping to expand that weren't going to get expanded. Uh, We'll have to see how that works out, and I'm not going to try to sort of prejudge what that might be. I will tell you also, one of the things we have to factor into our thinking is that the there were a number of initiatives that went through the General Assembly that were likely to increase some local costs, and we don't know fully what all of those are yet. And more importantly, there I know that there will be an effort in the veto session to try to get some of those items that amount to unfunded mandates from the state, to get some of those removed from the state uh, budget or from, from the state code so that they don't have adverse effects on our budget. Our best hope has to be that this whole episode gets over as soon as possible. And the way that it gets over as soon as possible is for people to stay home. The city's Economic Development Office has been working to help local businesses. Last week, the Economic Development Authority gave their blessing to a move to retool grant programs from entrepreneurship to resiliency. One of these, the BRACE grant, is already closed to new applications, unfortunately. Chris Engel, Economic Development Director, said they are doing other things as well. We helped... uh with some designated parking spots, uh, grab-and-go signage that was helpful to a lot of these uh, 
restaurants that are in the downtown area that uh, have challenges with drive up parking. Over 20 of those signs are put out and are, are, are out there now. And the last thing I want to ask you to close on is any business adaptations that you've come across where somebody's done something innovative um, to pivot what they're working on? Sure, there are a number, and uh, it's interesting at times like these, uh, you know, uh, create opportunities for people to be creative, and um, they, uh, we are seeing that in the city, and I'll, sh I'll share just a few. Uh, you may have seen, uh, this was featured in the newspaper uh, this week, but Osh Shoes is a local company that creates um, shoes using 3D printers, and they have pivoted to use their 3D printers to create a uh, plastic mask, and um, they are partnering with their neighbor, Luna Innovations, to actually finish the mask and create the wiring that, that connects it to folks. Uh, Indoor Biotechnologies, another local biotech company, is creating proteins used in testing kits. Um, and just another, another way to uh, adapt their business in addition to what they're already doing. Um, cardboard Safari is a local company that makes products out of cardboard and balsa wood. And they are, are pivoting to make and cut uh, plastic face shields in conjunction with another Virginia company uh, that's going to finish the product. Um, we've talked a bit about restaurants. Uh, Bodo's is a, a local restaurant, local uh, bagel shop that's been around for 30 plus years. And um, they've reopened their drive-thrus magically. And they're, they're seeing quite a bit of business. That's Chris Engel, the city's economic development director, appearing on the Seville 360 program on April 2nd. This week's show include further details on public safety operations, as well as how the crisis is affecting development in the community. Finally on today's show, I have put out the call to people and organizations to send me audio of what they're up to. I received one such message from Tina LaRoche, the executive director of Camp Holiday Trails. I'd like to share something as a leader of a local nonprofit. I am super proud to be the executive director of Camp Holiday Trails, and we are a year-round nonprofit dedicated to children and teens with medical needs. As you can imagine, we take health very seriously and are fortunate to have humor to use generously as well in our work. During this critical time, our priority has been the health and safety of our campers and also our staff team, our counselors, and our medical team. And we are committed to doing everything we can to ensure their well-being. Camp Holiday Trails is a community focused on building and maintaining a sense of family, even from afar. In a typical year, campers spend one to two weeks every summer with us, and yet they feel such a strong connection to camp that the community they build fuels them throughout the year and we hope this same connection will fuel them through the quarantine. We want to remain positive for them, but true confession, we're hiding our own anxiety as our rental income has dried up and our special event fundraising that is so critical has been shelved. But we are being proactive and we are deciding what medical and food supplies we can donate. And a conversation is also in progress about making our commercial kitchen available for community meals. Sometimes I say it feels like trying to run on marbles or to find stability while standing on quicksand, or maybe I'm standing on marbles that are on the quicksand. But what's holding me together is the idea that the nonprofit fabric in our community is woven through with strong leadership and visionary donors, and we are all working together to help using the tools and resources we have. That's Tina LaRoche, executive director of Camp Holiday Trails. 
You can learn more about the organization by clicking on the link in the show notes. Do you have something that you would like to get on the show? Record something, anything, on your phone and send it to wordcast at gmail.com. That's wordcast at gmail.com. I'm looking for any sound that you've collected, a story about the hardship that you're experiencing, or perhaps something musical that you've done. Anything goes. And that's another installment of this program, the Charlottesville COVID-19 report. Still doesn't really have a name, but I'm still trying to work this out as we go forward. I'm not doing the show daily at the moment because there isn't always necessarily something to say. But every time I do launch a program, I'm trying to bring you the most up-to-date information that I can to provide context to what we're going through as we go through it. I'm Sean Tubbs, and thanks for listening. Thank you.